Hello, John Elder here, science editor with The New Daily. Welcome to the COVID conversation. Today, I'm talking with Lynn Bender, a practicing psychologist and social commentator. Lynn once described to me the work of a psychologist as that of love's executioner, the destroyer of delusions. Maybe this is what the nation needs right now. We'll come back to that. But first, Lynn, I understand you were cutting back your client list and easing yourself into retirement. Then summer came with the fires. Now we have the plague and the phone began to ring. Yes, absolutely. It's a bit of deja vu, actually, getting back to working on the phone um, rather than face-to-face. It's, it's as though the whole nation's in strife and upset and distressed in the way the phones used to be at Lifeline where I used to work. Well, that's right. You were for a number of years the, the manager of Lifeline uh, in Melbourne. It must have been a bit eerie sometimes then with the phones all busy and a crisis being unloaded in every corner. I imagine plenty of households will now start sounding that way with family members on their phones unloading on their friends. So there's a kind of DIY lifeline diaspora going on at the moment. What advice do you have for people when they're unloading, but also for the people on the other end of the phone who are being good listeners? But of course, they have troubles of their own. I think it can be very fruitful for connecting because we are, in a way, all on the same page. Um, trivia is stripped away for most of us and so it can be a a way to link very closely and there are also no quick fixes Um, so people aren't as prone to give you their advice as to what you should do and I think that's helpful too because it's useful to share how you've managed something that may seem contradictory because the last thing you want your therapist to say, well, what I do is this. But if you really genuinely share your own struggle and listen to the other person's struggle, it can be quite helpful. And then you don't feel as isolated, which is the big risk of the uh, social distancing we're now doing, that feeling really isolated and being really isolated. I I suppose, though, that there are some people who are probably inherently within the nature of a friendship, the very good listener and the other person may actually tend to be the one who might talk a little bit more about themselves just as a matter of course. In this instance, though, I wonder that the, the, the person who's the good listener may need to mindfully or consciously look after themselves, be aware that maybe they need someone to talk to as well. Oh, that's a, a really good point, John, and I think that self-care is extremely important And one of the challenges, one of the many challenges, is that we have the old paradigms of take care of yourself, get exercise, go out, do things, get amongst people. All those things are now pretty well not allowed and not wise either. I mean, social distancing is extremely important. So how do you translate taking care of yourself now in an environment that seems to not support that? Um, And I think it takes a lot of um, initiative. You can still exercise even if it's only walks in your area 
if you're lucky enough to have a garden, you can spend time in the garden. We're having some beautiful autumn weather here in Melbourne, so it's a good time to let the sun be your antidepressant because it does provide an antidepressant function. And the other thing you can do is when you do talk to people, make it meaningful, make it honest, make it intimate, don't hide your feelings in the way you might otherwise have done. Well, I'm actually going to get back to that business of, of hiding feelings a, a little later. But look, I take it that some of your clients uh, are newly worried to the point of distraction. Others have ongoing issues that are amplified by the coronavirus environment. To what extent, though, are you hearing existential concerns, you know, this being the end of the world or at least feeling like it? Well, ironically, even when I was working with asylum seekers in detention, their concerns still still come down to the things that are actually happening to them, feeling um, that they're not getting attention or love or care, that they're not able to communicate with the people they are living with right now. This is for people who are actually living with someone, the ones who aren't living with anyone, their long-term isolation. I think as a person who, a therapist who has a strong sense of the existential reality of life that actually causes a lot of our stress. I'm also aware that it's often disguised to people. Our fear of not surviving will get projected onto our fear of losing our superannuation. And um, not that that's a trivial concern, but it's, it's a projected concern because behind that is, oh, how will I survive in the future? It's, well, that's an interesting point because uh, if I take what you're sort of saying to mean that existential concerns kind of lurk inside us uh, a fair bit of the time anyway, I mean, the American uh, anthropologist uh, Ernest Becker felt that we had, that we were in fact driven by this, this, this fear of death and we deny mm. it and we fill mm. it up with other things, whether it's heroes or, or such. But it, in this instance, there's no denying it. There's no denying that uh, if you get this disease, um, okay, the general talk is, well, if you're, un- if you're a young person, you'll be okay. Well, that's, that's not necessarily true. So we actually have this common thing that could conspire against us, and that's, uh, that brings a lot of things into sharp relief, I would say. Don't you think? Well, it certainly does. We're a pretty death-denying culture, We're also a grief-denying culture, so you're not supposed to grieve. You're supposed to make a new start, move on, get on with it, and we're pretty immobilised quite literally at the moment. And I think that the fact that we're getting the death toll every day. Now, it's not very high in Australia, but it's yet, but it's certainly extraordinarily confronting to hear what's happening in the U.S., Britain, parts of Europe, Italy, and we, deep down, I don't think we really feel that, oh, we're safe, we're far away, it won't happen to us. I think deep down we're quite worried about where this is going to head to. It's a bit like the, um, the movies from the, from the war, and I say movies because I wasn't quite old enough to go through the Second World War, but, you know, the daily lists of, of fatalities and, mm. and such. At the New Daily we have our own... Um, we post the John Hopkins numbers, and each morning it's the first thing I look at. It's it really is. Um, it's just a really wow moment every single day to look at those numbers. Really, yes. Well, the existential fears 
um, that Yalom names are Erwin Yalom, the psychotherapist, uh, existential psychotherapist, talks about fear of meaninglessness, you know, having no meaning in your life, fear of isolation, fear of freedom, ironically, and fear of death, meaning freedom fear is about you haven't got any structure or compulsion, you're at a loose end. And I think we're actually confronted with quite a few of those things in this social isolating mode. Of course, we feel very isolated and we don't feel we have anything clearly to do other than get up in the morning and post out what we cooked on Facebook. And then, you know, what is the meaning of our life? Because meaning often relates to a sense of where you're going. You're doing something to to get somewhere or to attain certain things. Well, there's the old-fashioned notion that, you know, people do it through their work and so forth. Mm. Look, in December you published a piece titled Grief and Rage, The Emotional Impact of a Nation on Fire. Mm -hmm. If you were to publish a new piece about the coronavirus, what would you be saying the nation's emotional state right now? I mean, rage is a very exhausting, very directed event and maybe at the moment we're, we're holding fire on rage because we've got other things going on. What are those other things that are going on? I don't think we're, I'm detecting a lot of rage, actually. I'm detecting people want very much to believe in that their leaders are going to protect them. So leaders' popularity goes up at times like this um, because they become the person we're kind of hostage to in a way. They have to make the decisions and we have to trust them because otherwise we're in a lot of trouble. So I think it's notable that a lot of the outrage um, has just died down, certainly in the press, certainly when you speak to people. I think fear is a greater a motivator at the moment and a sense of um, immediate crisis. So when you're in immediate crisis, you have to manage what's in front of you. There's a, there's a thing called terror management theory that holds that when things become dire for a population, they do gather around a more authoritative figure and to, to a degree surrender their power. And, and um, there have been instances, plenty of instances, of course, where leaders then uh, manipulate that situation to consolidate their position. I'm not sure we're quite seeing that at the moment because I have a feeling our leaders are as worried as the rest of us. But uh, I guess there's a question after, after a while at the same time that uh, what they're doing does require oversight and that's, that's an issue that's being publicly discussed at the moment. Yes, and we still have the concerns, not just the concerns. I mean, some would say, Naomi Klein says, we can't go back to normal. Normal was crisis. We were in a climate crisis and we weren't really reacting to it the way we are, say, to corona of this, we have to do these things where the, we don't like doing some of these things, but this is the lesser of two un, undesirable things. And so I think... Um, you, you, you mean we, we don't want to be locked away, but it's what we have to do to get through it. Exactly. And whether you conceptualise that in the more altruistic way of I could be spreading the virus, so I should protect others by not going out, or you take on the notion that, oh, I might get it, I don't want to get it. I think that most of us feel pretty clear that avoiding contagion means not being close to others physically. 
we don't have that much trouble understanding that. I think some of the problems have been in the double messaging of, oh, young people are immune. So, of course, the young people go out and party with each other. The young people don't get it seriously. But that's not actually how it works. It just gets passed on and whoever is more vulnerable or just more unlucky might succumb to it. To the virus itself, right? Yes. Look, you, you, we were talking the other night and I mentioned that people obviously and urgently want to know when all this ends and mm. there have been plenty of stories uh, in the media that ask that question, you know, when will life get back to normal, when will this be over? Now, I, I wonder that that may be the wrong question that we're asking at this point uh, and I'll get to that. But you said, though, that with clients... They want to be fixed. They come to you wanting to be fixed and they want to know when that fix will occur. And you said something very interesting. You said that they've been living with their worldview for a very long time and there's an inherent difficulty in them altering that view and that obviously holds for society at large and it certainly holds for society at large right now. Yes, I, that question is very common. It was commonly presented about grief and suffering in the wake of grief, like uh, if you'd had a lost relationship, people would say, I'm sick of feeling like this. How long does this go on? And the other side was when they kind of worked out some of their issues, they'd say, all right, well, what do I do to fix it? And we do have a kind of fix-it mentality in our culture, but grief has to be gone through, literally. It's a process we, we, we navigate and we come to terms with. And changing anything that's been held for so long is quite a process. But as you can see with corona, it's amazing that many of us seem to have got onto this very quickly. When I go for my solitary walks, people respectfully keep their distance and smile at me and we thank each other for keeping away from each other, which is a pretty new thing. And I think there are some that aren't on board with that, of course, but I'm astonished at how many are and how quickly it's come to pass, how quickly they they kind of recognise it. Do you, do you feel that part of that is that, okay? We, we certainly don't want to give a, you know give or, or give the virus to someone who, who's vulnerable. We, we don't want to get it ourselves. But are you seeing that that in part our obedience to social distancing really is ultimately in the hope of getting that fix? Yes, I think people have taken on the notion of lowering the curve. It's very tangible; you can see it, right? Whereas normally with grief, you can't see where it's going because. Some days you feel terrible and other days you feel a bit better um, and then you feel terrible again. So I think we've taken on the concept of flattening the curve and recognising that the curve, um, we all now know what exponential means, <laughs> most of us, and um, how it can just multiply. So I think we're learning a new language. It's going to be quite extraordinary. My granddaughter said to me she wasn't sure we'd be the same afterwards. It would be hard to get used to just going to school again. How, she, how old is she? She's 13. Right. And um, talking to both two of my grandchildren, they are quite aware of the challenge and they, they reflect a lot of the concerns we all have, the monotony of it, the sort of tediousness of it. Um, initially, people were quite on board with, oh, isn't this fun? We don't have traffic anymore. We can work from home. Look, 
we're all at home, isn't it cute? And then I think the honeymoon is over, as my daughter suggested, and we suddenly realise, oh, this is going to go on for a while. Well, I think one, one thing I really wanted to ask of you today, and mm. it, it, it might be a big ask in a way, but do you have some advice for how people can make peace for the fact that, A, that they are going to be at home for quite a while and make peace with the idea that perhaps it isn't so much useful as to see, oh, well, how soon will this be over, mm. as opposed to what will it take just to, to maintain the things that we actually have to do? As you were speaking, I thought of a metaphor that I sometimes used in therapy, that you're on a desert island and there's no hope of immediate rescue. You've got to forget about immediate rescue. And that would mean you then have to start thinking about how you constructed your life in that new reality. Okay, we are stuck at home. Okay, we're not going back anytime soon. And Although the directives from the government have changed a little bit, but mostly we've been told at least six months, and I think that's a modest estimate myself, but it's probably a time frame we can imagine. So if we chunk it down to, okay, I'm going to be here for six months, then we start working out how we're going to manage this, how we're going to take care of our health. So make sure we get exercise, even if you walk around the block several times at regular intervals in the day, trying to cook reasonably nutritious meals, learning to connect with others using technology, the phone, emailing, and, I mean, other ways we can connect with mankind, if you like, is reading. I think reading literature is extraordinarily helpful at times like this and um, recognising that This is actually something that's occurred in history before and people have got through it, not without harm and hurt, but there are ways through it. And and a lot of people are using the analogy of the Second World War or the First World War. The Queen alluded to we'll meet again in her speech. Yes, she did. She sounded very much like a wartime address. And, yes, we will meet again and we can meet in different ways. And some of the ways I think people are learning to meet is the phone and texting has been used just for very brief um, messages like meet you down the coffee shop or yep, I'm coming. And now we're learning to have conversations by text and conversations on the phone and Zoom, of course, and FaceTime. And in some ways that's a positive thing. Well, it sounds like it. It sounds like from from your analysis that we've sort of that more – easygoing conversation has been sort of put on hold as we've, as we've learned to live, live at a faster pace. And now you're, I guess what you're saying is we need to be, learn to be living at a, at a slower pace. And it's more intimate because, you know, the, the curt um, use of text, which is, you know, even shortened to LOL or a, a, yeah, yeah. an emoji, <laughs> it's very, been very reductionist of real communication. And there's been a lot of disparagement about social media and use of the phone and that and now we need those mechanisms and we have to adapt them to meet our needs rather than just be in a way false advertising you know people used to mostly Facebook's used to show how well you're doing and where you're going and who you're meeting and Look at me. I'm oh, you mean you, you mean we were, we were getting kind of um, messages that weren't really honest, were, were deluding messages through social media. Is that what you mean? 
Yeah, it's kind of our PR. This is what I do. Oh, our own PR. Yes. Uh, I do need to ask you, just bring it back to the notion of how we make peace with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Is there an idea perhaps that because, especially in Australia where, you know, in terms of the, the health impact, it is relatively light compared to what's happening in Europe and the United States, do those horrifying figures from New York or, or, or Italy, do they serve as some kind of motivation for us to, to hang tight and to do the right thing? I think they're a warning they're definitely a warning. Um, we haven't been good at heeding warnings and we don't usually heed the warnings that come from Asia or Africa. We tend to say, oh, that's over there. But when it's happening in Western countries, advanced Western countries, it certainly hits home for us all that, oh, we can recon- relate to that. That could be us. Um, the other thing to remember is we're all in varied situations. Some of us are struggling with homeschooling kids, others are struggling with living alone, others um, are struggling with with financial concerns that are very real and so there's not a one-size-fits-all and yet in the end I think the most important single thing that we all need and that we all should foster is connection with others. That's that's a universal need. It, it does seem to be get, get talked around a lot, but of course we tend to live our lives very much inside ourselves. Mm. Uh, some people um, might appear to take a very pragmatic view of what's going on. They're ready and willing to go along with what needs to be done. Um, perhaps in the main, they're people who can afford to take this on the chin, or mm. maybe they have a kind of resilience that the mm. rest of us could make use of. On the other hand, they might be holding off a crash of sorts and, and, mm. and not know it. What, what do you reckon? Yes, well, certainly our style of coping is very significant. A lot of people go into complete pragmatism initially, setting up their households. And I think even the toilet paper frenzy was part of that, you know. Stocking well, I'm, I'm, I've, got my, I've got my toilet paper, I'm all set. Yeah, stocking up the larder. And, of course, when, when things started disappearing on the shelves, people got that fear of scarcity and the mistrust that there will there be enough to get us through this will we have to go into quarantine because we started to realise other countries were locking down. I guess in a way, I guess what I'm asking is, is there a vulnerability in toughing your way through a crisis? Some people joke their way through it, others yeah. try and reframe it as yeah. a story that they're in control of. Um, they have their worries and their sadness, but, you know, they sort of, gloss over that a bit to kind of push through what is the risk of of holding all of that at bay well that's um a more common style with men that i've noted and when i was at lifeline we'd have two-thirds of our callers would be female so i think that's a pretty good um indication that women were more prepared to talk about their feelings and their concerns and there has been some research done that men like to solve the problem and keep it to themselves and only talk about it when they've worked out the solution. Because there's a high premium for men on being uh, self-reliant and working things out, now that can make, and we know that men are more vulnerable because of that, more vulnerable to suicide, more vulnerable to all sorts of health risk along the way. And we've seen an example actually in Boris Johnson, who Boris, t- jo- Boris Johnson. Yeah, he was. I'm fine, you know. I'm shaking hands with people who've got corona, and then 
I'm fine. I'm working from home and then, you know, barely able to stand up. I'm still working. Anyway. To, 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 be, to be fair, be a little fair to him, of course, you know, he, he does have the weight of the nation on and I suppose that you'd have that sense of responsibility to show, look, I'm, I'm, I'm still here, I'm still plugging away. No doubt it also t- touches into his own sort of style of toughing through, I suppose, or crashing well, through. I think that taps into a flaw in that. We do want people, we do want to feel people are leading us and they're strong, but also we have to accept when they fall and someone else takes it up. None of us are, unfortunately, irreplaceable in certain ways on the job. And I think it's not a good model to soldier on because we actually want people to identify when they're sick and to seek help and to then self-isolate very rapidly. On the other hand, getting back to the psychology of it, everyone has their coping style and that pragmatic style has its point and it's useful. And there are people, we need people who take charge in an emergency and, and get on with doing what has to be done in an emergency. But on the other hand, there, there is the need also to be able to reflect on what's happening, to be able to sit down and admit that times when we feel low. Because if we can admit that, we'll probably be able to re- regroup ourselves, get our energy back, think about what we might do to make things better. But if we're trying to hold back our feelings um, endlessly, it takes all our energy to do that. Um, well, that leads me to another question. Like, there's the school of positive psychology, which what you might call sunny side up thinking. Is yes. that much use to much much use to us at the moment? And how far can it take us? Seligman, who at first had learned helplessness as his that's that's Martin Seligman. Yeah, Martin Seligman. He he decided we could do we could learn optimism. And I think one of the problems with both those stances is the duality of them. You know, you're either here or you're there. I think we have to learn to accept, yes, I do feel helpless sometimes. We want to navigate between realistic hope, not fake hope. If we we have false hope, we either neglect what has to be done or we make inappropriately risky decisions. We ignore what we need to do. And if we go into complete despair, we're also totally immobilised. So we, we don't want to go into total pessimism. We don't want to go into um, false optimism. Is it likely, though, that most of us will, as this goes on, have perhaps have some kind of crash? Um, it may not be wildly dramatic, but is, it, is, is that likely that most of us will have, a, have some kind of emotional crash through this? Well, some of that can tend to happen when... The, the worst of the immediate crisis passes. You know, you might find with the bushfire victims, many of them really um, worked hard to manage, to help each other, to survive basically. And I think later on when the reality really sinks in and the immediate danger's passed, you've almost got the capacity and the, in quotes, luxury of recognising the losses and the feelings. Right. I've got a, a couple of final questions for you. Lynn, you're 72, if you don't mind me saying. I guess it's out there now, which puts you in the higher risk category. You have asthma. And so uh, does every walk around the block feel a bit like a like a bombing mission? You could get taken out at any time. No, I, I even do some trips to the supermarket. If there's a small one near me, so I can kind of mostly keep my distance. 
I think at first I felt a bit like I had a target on my back, especially when I was told to stay home more than anybody else. <laughs> but I already was aware that um, time's winged chariot drew near. I think, you know, in your 70s you kind of explore the notion of the finite time left. I just didn't think it would be as challengingly close as it seems to have become. Now, it may not be any closer than it would have been, but it still feels like that. So that's not necessarily a negative thing either because I think if we're aware that our time is not endless, maybe we appreciate it more, maybe we make the most of it, maybe we, we, we walk out what really matters to us. Well, there's that idea that the, the pressure of mortality is what gives us our humanity. I'm probably going to have to push ahead here, I think, just with a final question for you, that your mother is now 100 years old. She was born just after the Spanish flu epidemic Mm. uh, or at the tail end of it, but she lived long enough to go through this one. She's in an aged care home. You're actually not able to see her. There's a ban on for you to visit. Yes. How is she doing and and how are you managing that separation? Well, my siblings and I ring there every day, but she's not very able to comprehend the phone. So it hasn't proved. Sometimes we're lucky enough and she's with her on that day. And she spoke to my brother and he explained about the plague and cholera in Polish and she she got it. And I explained about it before I left. It was It was devastating that last day I saw her because I didn't know if I'd see her again. And um, I still don't know if I'll see her again. So most of the time I try to uh, have trust in the, in the service that she's in. I know the manager who's a very, very sensitive person. And it's actually um, because my parents escaped the Holocaust but they left a lot of relatives behind. And it feels a bit to me like, oh, that's must, how they must have felt, having to kind of leave people and hope they'd be all right, but know that there was uh, something approaching that they may not survive. And um, I think we have these things in our history that will get triggered by the separations we're now going through because all of us are experiencing a level of separation, except for the one, you know, if you're living with a partner or you're living with your children, but everyone else you, you really need to keep your distance from and you can only connect with on a very limited basis. And it does remind me of those um, of the war chart years where people could only send letters and then the letters stopped. So it's a very sobering time. We are connecting with our histories. Oh, Lynn, that's a tough situation with your mother and a pretty sad note to end on. Still, it's always good talking with you. And I hope we'll catch up again soon. Thank you, John. Next week, my guest is social researcher David Chalk. For decades, David took the pulse of the Australian psyche, charting the steady shift to an increasingly polarised society. Now, courtesy of COVID-19, be you an Instagram nose picker or an identity politicker, we are all undeniably in the same scary boat. Will the plague work to make us a more cohesive nation? with more talking, less shouting, or are we enjoying an uncomfortable truce? Some big ideas to throw around. I hope you'll join me. Talk to you then.